A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 164 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the teenage obsession Luke has for Leia, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. You know, I'm thinking that since this episode, we're talking about a story that I really don't like. That will make me the antagonist. So maybe you like the antagonist in the story we're going to talk about. I just shouldn't have a name. Maybe we shouldn't introduce me as Nathan P. Butler. Maybe I should just be the annoyed one. He who shall not be named or something like that. That seems to be like a common Dark Horse theme of late. I would... Oh, kind of weird. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we banter about Dark Horse Comics Star Wars Volume 2, Trade Paperback Number 3, which is single issues 15 through 18, by Brian Wood. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Brian Wood. You know, after five days of Sith that we reviewed last time, there was hope. There was hope that this series had a chance to do something bold and do something new and do something exciting. Uh, they brought in Brian Wood to write for Star Wars with Star Wars Volume 2 and hyped it up a lot. He is a superstar writer. He is awesome. You're going to love what he does with Star Wars. And yet, other than some bold steps taken in five days of Sith, we have yet to see anything bold interesting, new, or exciting from really anything that Brian Wood is putting out. It is as though he is writing, thinking he is the first person ever to write for Star Wars, so he's doing things that by this point are very trite and generic in the Star Wars saga, as if they're supposed to be exciting this time, as if somehow we're seeing them for the first time and are supposed to be hyped about it. This is going to be one of those episodes where if you really like this story, I'm going to be the one you hate, because... This is such a bland, generic, dull tale with flaws throughout that it's just not something I think is really worth anybody spending the time and money on at this point with it. Um, I guess context here, this is a story you refer to as Trade Paperback 3 and issues 15 through 18. Again, just like last time, we have a Trade Paperback numbering change or an order change that's going on here. The next six issues were the second arc and the second trade paperback. But then you get in the ongoing series the two-issue Five Days of Sith story. Then this four-issue Rebel Girl story, more on the title in a second, and then a final two-issue story called A Shattered Hope. Well, they weren't going to put out a trade paperback of four issues that had Five Days of Sith and only half of this one, or the back half of this one and A Shattered Hope, and trade paperback number three winds up being these four issues, whereas number four takes the two we already looked at, the two before this, and the two after this, and combines them together. Takes the two-issue story arcs, makes them into one trade paperback, although reading order-wise, you wouldn't think it'd be that big a deal. But there is a point at the end of this story arc where if you're reading it as trade paperbacks, it won't make sense. It'll certainly at least put a new context 
to some of the things that we saw back in Five Days of Sith. This is a story again by Brian Wood called Rebel Girl. To me, the name itself is somewhat insulting. I don't know where they thought they were going calling it Rebel Girl. I don't think if it was a story about a male primary character, they would have called it Rebel Boy. Man, soldier, Jedi, smuggler, whatever. Even if this was called Rebel Princess, it would have seemed like it made more sense. To me, saying girl instead of woman or some other descriptive term is diminishing of Leia. Uh, and just, it feels wrong. The aesthetic of the name doesn't feel right to me with this. It feels out of place and like the kind of thing that we try to avoid when dealing with, for instance, fandom, when women oftentimes aren't given equal footing to men. And here it's Rebel Girl, unless they're supposed to be kind of a uh, an inside joke we're not getting. You know, oh, it's just a Rebel Girl kind of thing. You know, she's a Rebel Girl in a Rebel World or some crap. Beyond <laughs> that, the name feels off. Uh, artistically, it has art by Stefan, I believe it's Crety, C-R-E-T-Y. And yeah, not even thinking story-wise here, this is an arc where the characters all basically look like they've been beaten up, so their faces are puffy all the time. Not quite mashed potatoes, as we've seen before, but they've all been kind of smacked around a little bit. And the only facial expressions anybody seems to have are one of two things, both poop-related. Either they look like they're straining to take a crap and having a hard time, or they look like somebody is holding a little tiny turd under their nose, and their entire face is recoiling from the smell. Uh, the rest of the art, pretty much okay. The ships, the settings, but man, the facial expressions are just ridiculous. And most of the time, they're leaning in such a way that all the characters have five heads instead of four heads. Beyond that, story-wise, oddly enough, the story isn't terrible. It's just extremely generic. It's, oh, look. Leia needs to make an alliance with a planet so they can put a rebel base there because the rebels are looking for a base since Yavin. Uh, oh, hey, here's a prince. She's a princess. They can get married, and if they do that, they will have a home. Yay, marriage will strengthen the alliance. How many times have we seen those types of stories out there, and not just in general sci-fi, but in Star Wars, and wasn't this done so much better so many years ago with the whole thing with Ice Holder in courtship of Princess Leia, and just how that was all set up. It's just another one of these, you know she's not going to wind up marrying the guy, something's got to derail it. What else is there to the story that's supposed to draw us in? It is a story in which there are some betrayals that you see coming miles away, and it's a story with an antagonist that really isn't the Empire per se. The antagonist is a betrayer, again, that you see coming miles away, within the Arachar government, the government of this planet that Leia is trying to marry herself into to give them an alliance base. And I guess maybe the idea here is we're going to make it be kind of a surprise when he turns on the prince because we never give this character any backstory and we don't even give him an effing name in the entire story. But instead, it just turns out as clumsy because he's the only one in a position to be able to really do it. He's really the only Arachar character outside of the royal family we ever see much at all. So the twist is not really much of a twist when it finally happens. And you're sitting back wondering, why is the antagonist of an entire four-issue story arc never given a name? He is always, yes, General, this General. Oh, the General says, thank you, General. It's like they're using General. Like again, it's like an inside joke. They realize this story is so freaking generic that they're going to call him simply the general, as in generalized or generic. It's it's just a story that falls flat, and its execution doesn't help. It's not that it again. It's not that it's a bad story per se. It's an extremely run-of-the-mill throwaway story, and you can pretty much see the plot beats coming, except for one throughout the entire thing. It's there's nothing really surprising about it. And they take an already dull concept and execute it in such a way that it makes the flaws stand out even more and makes it something that's instead of being a meh story, it's just a story that you want to just stick away and never read again. The one thing you don't see coming is the thing that grates on most people for this storyline, which is Luke Skywalker. 
if you ever wondered what it would be like if Luke was a petulant little emo S-word head, look no further. This is the story in which the fact that Luke can't be with Leia and she wants to marry somebody else is going to make him act like a teenager or a preteen or really anybody in a... He, put it this way, Luke in this story is any of the characters from Twilight when they don't get to be with the one they want to be with. And that is not the Luke that we know. Not in this time, not in any time. And it kicks you out of the tale almost any time Luke shows up. He even has a final frame in the first issue where he ends. It's dark. He's gritting his teeth and he's pissed off and upset. He just ignites his lightsaber. Ooh, what's Luke gonna do? Nothing. The scene goes nowhere. It's just another moment of him having his emo time. Rebel Girl is a story you should avoid. There is not really anything here to enjoy. Now, I think for me, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm a lot in the same camp as you, and I think part of where I and possibly even you are coming from is the main issue is that I'm an EU fan, and this conflicted with almost everything I know, and then rewrites things. Uh, I mean, you know, if I was looking at this like I was the new canon stuff, I'd probably be okay with a lot more of the story. Granted, Luke's out-of-control character reaction when he goes whiny beat, itch i mean it's just like are you kidding me who is this guy and the facial expressions they give him to express it are just you want to reach through and erase him from the page it's just really bad uh but the, the whole rebel girl thing you know I, I i know nathan you have a bigger issue with it than me but i think part of it is like when i hear rebel girl i think like that movie tank girl or i think the term fangirl um you know i i know where you're coming from with the aspect of, you know, woman versus girl. But I do kind of, you know, I, I don't see many fans that call themselves fangirls saying that they're fan women or, or anything like that. Like they just assume that the title girl in that regard. But I think that the reason why they called it that, like there are parts of me that conflict because sometimes I think it's more about Luke's story. But by the end of everything, there is this conflict with Leia. You know, what is expected of a princess Leia, not a rebel Leia? And in the end, it's Re Leia's the rebel girl. I mean, there's this this constant coming back to, well, you're not acting the way a princess should because she's out there working on the uh, the X-Wing. She's got her fatigues rolled down around her waist, kind of like the uh, really cool Jaina statue I got behind me, you know, and she's getting dirty and grimy before some big, uh, you know, dignitary meeting with all these hosts that, that are putting everything on for the wedding and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so there's that question of what it means for her to be a princess and what it means to be a rebel. And at the end, one of the, you know, the prince character was talking about how she was very committed to the reb, uh, the rebellion, the rebel alliance, the rebel cause. Uh, and, and there was aspects of, of her that was going on. Like there's a moment where, uh, you know, a ship shows up and Mon Mothma sends her up there. And I'm just kind of like, really? What, what, why would you send her? And it, and it made me stop and think about Leia as a character throughout the saga. And, you know, I mean, she's a character that I always assume, and rightfully so, is one of the leaders of the Rebellion. But then I, I see comics like this, and they put her in these positions where I'm like, why would you be putting a leader of the Rebellion in this position and not somebody that is expendable? Uh, I mean, sending Han up there at least makes more sense. You know, he's not a leader of the Rebellion. Leia is. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it made me stop and think, you know, in the new canon world, that would be something I would like to see them step away from more. Maybe make Leia less of a leader and more of a rebel. Uh, you know, because... When that happens in Legends, I'm I'm constantly questioning why would you do that? Like she's she's such a you know fulcrum part of the rebellion. Why would you put that asset out there to be sniped by the Empire? So wait, there was wait. that aspect. Was that on purpose? You called her a fulcrum. <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to find out who fulcrum is in the season finale of Rebels. So I I you know, had to call him on it. Um, I think you're right when it comes to the whole fangirl thing versus rebel girl. But to me, it's not exactly a, a parallel because remember, the reason it's fangirl and not fan woman or something like that is because it is a, uh, a mirror image of fanboy. But where did fanboy come from? Fanboy these days isn't necessarily a pejorative. You sometimes say like, oh, I can't believe you're talking down the PS3, you Xbox fanboy kind of thing. But now fanboy doesn't have nearly the negative connotation that it used to. But it started as something that was bad to be called mm -hmm. and then got sort of adopted as something that was bad. It's almost like it's not nearly as bad as, but it's almost like 
the old use of the N-word as a racial slur against black people, and then taking that and dropping the ER, putting an A on it, and using it as sort of a buddy-buddy, you know, what's up, my mm-hmm. N-word without the ER on it. As I can't sing slur. any Tupac, man. I'm always constantly like, am I being racist because I'm loving this? Yeah, it's it's sort of, a, and I'm taking it back, to use Randall Graves' words from Clerks 2, but... Just because you've taken back a term like fanboy doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have that diminutive aspect there. I mean, most guys aren't going to take well if in trying to, sh- you know, to discuss them in a leading light, they refer to them as boys. You know, I mean, you wouldn't talk about the president. Well, OK, let's not because boy can mean a racist thing when it comes to black people. So let's say uh, George W. Bush okay, or Bill Clinton, a white president. You wouldn't refer to them as boy. Because, or like, he's the U.S. boy, the American boy. No, because well, he's boy part of the old dominion. boys club. But that's different. You know, the, the rebel, it's it's the rebel girls club. Okay, but again, it has a different connotation than when it's just describing a single person. I guess I'm. It's not something to really get hung up on here. It's just something that is always rubbing the wrong way about the title of this story, and to me, feels like it's just sort of the icing on the cake of where they take what could have been granted a mediocre story, though I would go with you that it could be a better story if it was in the new canon as opposed to being Legends because it wouldn't have the context around it, even though it really would set a bad precedent for Luke. Uh, (laughs) But they take a story that's already kind of nyeh, and there's just all these little execution issues that wind up making it worse than it needs to be. It's like getting a crappy car and... You know, it may be a crappy car, it's okay, but the previous owner had cigarette burns on some of the parts of the interior, or it just doesn't smell quite right. You know, the mechanics are what matters. Is it going to get you from place to place and the overall aesthetic of the vehicle? But there's those little things that make a situation that was already kind of meh into something that you just don't enjoy. Well, one thing I have to wonder, too, though, there's a moment where as everything's moving on, Leia's get to this point where she's going to be marrying this royal guy so the rebels can have a place to kind of set up camp. And Mon Mothma comes in. She goes, how are you feeling? And Leia goes, I'm sad. I'm lonely. I feel like I'm losing something or like I've already lost it. I'm doing the right thing, aren't I? And I think the thing that really bothers me about this is like Mon Mothma never once questions, you know, hey, Leia, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, that angle of it is out. I mean, Luke, Han, Wedge, they're all questioning the heck out of it. But it also kind of comes across like they're wanting to be suitors themselves kind of things. Maybe not so much with Wedge, but there's that male-female aspect of it. But I don't know. I, I feel like from a from a female perspective, there is a, 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 I don't know, maybe even a feminist drop ball here with the fact that you've got an elder statesman like Mon Mothma not saying, you don't have to do this. You know, I mean at least making Leia question it. I mean, the fact that she seems to be like, okay with selling Leia like cattle just really drove me nuts. There was something about that that really bothered me. And and you'd mentioned the fact that this was a lot like the courtship of Princess Leia. And that was one of the things that also I, I was thinking about because I did kind of remember moments like that in the courtship of Princess Leia where they were like trying to talk her out of it. But that was something that seemed to be missing from the narrative with this. You know, I go back and forth on the whole what should Mon Mothma have said Because at the same time that she might be thought of as not doing her role and speaking up as a strong woman of telling Leia, you know, you don't have to do this. You can lead in other ways. You're not just, you know, again, like you said, sort of cattle uh, to be branded off or or someone to be, you know, wedded off for a political alliance. At the same time, there's something to be said for the idea that Mon Mothma, as the leader of the alliance, wouldn't put the kibosh on this immediately and would allow Leia to make her own decision. And there's a scene in which Leia is talking to Wedge about her motivations. You can tell that she's conflicted, but she's trying to do the right thing for the Alliance. And perhaps there's an emotional void she's trying to fill that makes me think that this is something where it's sort of a, you know what? It's Leia's call. Even if Mon Mappa doesn't agree it's the best choice of action, she's willing to allow her to follow the path that she's choosing. I'm not sure how I would have felt if it was Mon Mothma stepping up and saying, don't do this. Because then it would have come down to almost making it seem as though Leia doesn't get to make those kind of decisions about her own life. And you'd still wind up in the same, you know, uh, lack of feminism, not not feminism, but lack of um, uh, female character respect, perhaps, um, that you Mm -hmm. could see into it either way, I suppose. 
Well, one thing, too, that struck out was that Wedge finally seemed to feel more right. I would say Wedge, Han, and Chewie are probably the most accurate of all the characters in this. Everyone else felt odd. Luke especially. I mean, Leia had moments where where it felt like Leia from different angles and different aspects, but they really latched onto that whole romantic angle with Luke. And where earlier, I think it was volume two, uh, where they really made Luke whiny and kind of complaining about being, you know, I'm the best pilot. And Wedge, you should be putting me in there. And, and what they did with Wedge and, and Rogue Squadron and Luke's connection there, at least when it came to Wedge's side here, they, they toned that down, whereas Luke was just off the hook. It was just like, what in the heck are you doing with him? The facial expressions were just so angry, and I, the character just came across very ugly. Uh, I wasn't enjoying Luke at all through this. Han was funny. He had some great moments. Uh, you know, when, when the ship shows up and they're like, can one ship go up against something so big? He's like, I've been known to try. You know, little things like that were really fun. Uh, I mean, there were some aspects about this that had I not had other information about the EU and just went into this all by itself, it was a decent enough ride, especially for Leia's character, but not for Luke. There's, there's a comment where Luke's, uh, they, they say Luke's a soldier savant. And I don't know what Wood was trying to do with Luke through this series, but in a lot of ways, I feel like he just crapped all over the character. I mean, you know, in the second issue, we had Ben talking to Luke and we had uh, Prithy or Piri was able to hear him and stuff. And then there are scenes in this where Ben starts talking to Luke while Luke's surrounded by people that are potentially enemies and none of them hear him. So I'm like, okay, what's going on? Is it, is it they have to be force sensitive? And so does that mean that Leia's hearing him then when this goes down? There's so many questions that Brian raises in aspects that really have little to do with the story that that just kind of brought me out of the story at times as well. And I, I don't know. Is that part of the way he went about it, the the not tying things? I'm not sure. There was just definitely something about it that felt off about this whole series. It is definitely one that I don't think I would recommend unless you were absolutely new to it. And then I would have you read it and be like, and check that out and then read some other stuff and, and let me know what you think. Because... I don't know. This one wasn't a very strong read. And, and for being one of the last of the stuff that Dark Horse was putting out, it kind of makes me sad because the end of the Legends era of new materials went out with a Peter like a like a wet fart. We'll eventually come to Vader at the end of the story, but I would say he's probably the one that seems the most like himself. Although that's not saying much because he's only in there for a couple of pages at the end of the last issue of this. Well, it did strike me though that that whole timing of this because palpatine seemed very angry with vader at that point and this in issue wise does come after five days of sith which felt a little bit different it was like okay i thought vader had redeemed himself so in that regard in the trade paperbacks i could see them why they moved five days of sith as well because that scene kind of plays a little better oh see i i'm the exact opposite you know he's mad because of what happened in Five Days of Sith. There really hasn't been much redemption afterwards. And we have Vader already back on Coruscant. At this point, I would say that, I mean, you can almost slip this scene in with some of the scenes from Five Days of Sith and say that some of this was running parallel, which apparently it is mm -hmm. meant to do. But no, I mean, otherwise it's Palpatine getting mad again and speaking of events back in the second volume, which is already really dealt with in Five Days of Sith. You know, it's just... I don't know. The, the way they collected them winds up screwing up the order a little bit, but fortunately or unfortunately, you know, I caught these as single issues as they were coming out, so got it in the right order. Me too. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So we start part one of Rebel Girl, issue 15, in the present, in theory, which is when we see Leia, or someone who we are apparently meant to believe is Leia, doesn't look like Leia, uh, speaking with C-3PO about the upcoming nuptials, the fact that she's supposed to be marrying Prince Kaspar of Arachar. And contextual-wise... What you basically have here are some scenes that actually interweave with back in the last issue of From the Ruins of Alderaan. Because you had Leia encounter Tag Rogarin on, right, the Venator-class Star Destroyer that had two different freaking names, depending on which issue you were looking at, Audacity or Resolute. And 
As you get towards the end of that, Leia just kind of shows back up again, and it turns out that somewhere off-panel, after she left the ruins of Alderaan, before she winds up getting back to the Rebel fleet, she had to stop and refill her water. And when she did, she happened to stop on Erichar and make the diplomatic contacts that make this possible. At the end of that story, we had seen her basically tell them, hey, I'm about to get married to this prince down on Erichar so that we can possibly have a new rebel base there, and that'll be the, you know, the solution to all of our problems. And the last issue of it ends with a scene in which they emerge in hyperspace above Erichar and are welcomed there. And then we jumped off to Five Days of Sith. Now what we've got is the present is after that point, where we see her first meeting with the king and queen, King Tolar and Queen Tina, T-I-I-N-A, so perhaps she's a clone, Tina, like Luke or Joros Sabaoth, and Prince Caspar. She's met Caspar, either hasn't met the king and queen, or has to formally present herself to them. It's a very formal culture here. And we see them meet, we get to find out that Tolar apparently must be a relative of Gandalf the Grey, because of the way that the king looks and all. And we immediately flash back to a scene that is seemingly set between the scene in the last issue of From the Ruins of Alderaan, in which she announces what's going on, and the scene in which they emerge over Erichar. And it's probably the best scene out of the entire thing, in my opinion. It's Leia talking to Wedge about what's going on. Leia says, I can see the whole crew staring at me, Wedge. People are just feeling unsure, Leia. No one really knows what you're thinking. And why is that anyone's business? Erichar will be a feather in the Alliance's cap, a world incredibly rich in resources, willing to break away from the Empire and join us. Boop, 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 time out. They're not actually breaking away from the Empire. They're not allied with either side at this point. So, kind of a wrong phrasing there. Well, For- or is it, though? I mean, because isn't the way the Emperor kind of stated things when he became the Emperor? I mean, didn't everything just become the Empire now? <laughs> well, in theory, but they make a point over and over again in this story about how they haven't allied with either side. So, you know, Caspar wants to choose the rebels and the general who shall not be named. We're going to call him Voldemort, I think. Um <laughs> isn't going to wind up siding with the rebels. He wants to choose for them to side with the Empire. There's not a choice of siding with the Empire if they already are, really. Um, just forgive me for saying this, but Erichar could fill the role Alderaan once did. And of course, there's almost a double meaning to that, and Wedge says, Don't rush to fill emotional voids, Leia. It's not like that, Wedge. Can't you understand? The Rebellion only exists so far because of people willing to do extraordinary things, to do whatever it takes, to make great sacrifices. I'm doing my part. This is how we'll win. Some do sacrifice more than others. And no one can doubt your dedication, Leia. And that's when they emerge from hyperspace and we jump back to that last scene of From the Ruins of Alderaan before then moving forward into the rest of this story. I find the conversation, minus the last couple of lines there perhaps, to be, it's not, I mean, it's, it's Leia. You know, it's the whole, you know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I think it's in the best interest of the Alliance, even if it is personal sacrifice. We see that from Leia plenty. That in and of itself is not new. The fact that she says it'll fill the void that Alderaan had within the Alliance And Wedge immediately picks up on the idea that this might be her trying to fill an emotional void, continuing Mm -hmm. on with the emotional theme of how has Leia dealt with the destruction of Alderaan, which granted in Legends is all over the place. Sometimes she's okay with it, sometimes she's not, sometimes she's grieved, sometimes she hasn't. But at least within the through line of this series as an island by itself, it's continuing on that same emotional drive that we got for Leia early on in the series, and we're going to see, to a degree, play into A Shattered Hope, the last two-issue arc. So I like that conversation and the fact that she's having it with Wedge. Because this is someone who, in theory, in this series, she's closer to than we usually would have expected her to be at this point within the Alliance. Uh, she's not having that conversation with Luke or Han or somebody who has their own petulant, but I don't want you to marry somebody else, I want you to marry me, kind of motivation. Instead, it's someone she can think of as just a rebel, ally, colleague, and friend and he's giving her his assessment. You know, I don't know if if Taiko Kashu exists at this point in this story, uh, but when she goes, "Forgive me for this, for saying this," like I kind of wished he was in the room because Wedge is a Karelian; he's not an Alderanian. Alderanian? I don't even know how you would say it, but but he didn't come from Alderaan, and Taiko did, 
And so, you know, I, I don't know the whole, forgive me for saying this. Like I was expecting like it to be some kind of emotional slap to wedge where it wasn't exactly, it was more like a slap to herself. Uh, so that, that, that phrasing kind of struck me as odd. And I was kind of like, man, I kind of wish there was an Alderaanian in there with them, you know, so they were able to kind of flesh that out. But I like that little dialogue, the art at this point, like you, you said how at the beginning, you couldn't really tell it was Leia. Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, who is that? Okay. She's talking to three people. Oh, it is Leia. You get to hear in that scene that you say where, with all the dialogue, it doesn't quite look like Leia, but it's a Leia I can dig. Like, that's a sexy Leia right there. I'm like, all right. And it's close to Leia enough that, that I get it. And, and she's constantly morphing and stuff, but they kind of stay close to that character. And that seems to be a constant with the art of this uh, Star Wars volume two. You know, it, it's good art, but it's it's um, nebulous art. Like they're constantly changing. And even when it is nice... It's never the same two looks, you know, I mean, they're, they're pictures that you would use as an avatar and stuff, but they're never two of them that look quite the same. Uh, and another thing that I really dug, though, in the art was as the ships were coming in, some of the Carillion Corvettes had these little side rings around the engine thrusters, kind of the way uh, Darth Maul's ship did. Um, and, and kind of how the Inquisitor's TIE Fighter does. And I thought that was kind of cool. And it's kind of something I kind of hope that they do continue with Rebels and stuff like that moving forward. You know, that is one of the interesting side of things with the art is that, you know, while they're rehashing some of the older elements of things that we've gotten in EU and Legend Stories before, the art's totally new. The art's advancing. And I, I, I like that. It is something that I enjoy. i am always been a ship guy. And so seeing the different ships illustrated in the art and stuff and seeing them evolve. And, you know, I mean, later at the end, when, when the Star Destroyers show up, they're dreadnoughts in the middle of the fleet. I, I got I was so tickled by that. So we move into the next scene. They've just arrived on Arachar and we get another little piece in Brian Woods recreating and rebooting, retooling, retconning the backstory of Rogue Squadron. Remember, Wedge had that idea back in a previous arc and was going to suggest it. So toss out the old story of where Rogue Squadron's name and situation came from. Turns out it's Wedge's idea shortly after the Battle of Yavin, and when he is talking to a couple other members of the team, Russ and uh, Tess, who of course you know, never show up outside of this story, so here we are, new founding members of Rogue Squadron that nobody ever hears about ever, ever again in any of the Rogue Squadron stuff, and because it wasn't you know, written at the time. He's giving out their call signs, pointing out him as Rogue Leader, uh, Tess as Rogue 2, Russ as Rogue 3. It's like, oh, the approval came back. You got the Rogue designation. One day the whole galaxy will know Rogue Squadron. Mark my words. And it's just kind of another of these, why do they need to do that with the name in this story? Why in this series at all? Why didn't somebody say, excuse me, it already has a backstory? What the hell are you doing? But to me, it's just kind of like that's, that's ground we've tread already. So it's just another ongoing headache as opposed to being something new here. But I take your point about the art not looking the same for the characters. If you look at Wedge when he's first talking to Leia in profile, Wedge when he is then looking forward while talking to Leia in that scene, move to the next page where the Rogue Squadron conversation is going on, see him talking to the team and then climbing into the X-Wing, you would think these are four different characters. Mm -hmm. They don't look alike. In fact, I almost think that... As Wedge is getting into the X-Wing at the end, he looks like what if you took Bruce Campbell, made him a cartoon, and gave him gas. <laughs> That's Wedge. It just it doesn't make sense. To me, though, I, I, oddly enough, I found I wasn't bothered as much by the Rogue Squadron thing in this issue because it sort of felt like it was a dead issue by then. Like, ugh, they already mm. screwed it up. You know, it's, it's like the executor. If the executor were to show up here, not sure I would give a crap. They've already put it out there back in a previous arc. It's just an ongoing perpetuation of a continuity error, and here we are again. So they finally arrive on Erichar. They all land. Leia gets to have a quick meeting aboard one of the ships with diplomats from Erichar, basically working out the details of the deal. Basically, there's this old mining land that the rebels are going to get as a place to put a base. It's not great land, but the minerals and stuff will help hide them from sensors and whatnot. And the last step of the deal is Leia marrying Prince Caspar. And this is, again, still part of that sort of flashback sequence in that it's prior to the present, but that particular part is shortly after the arrival we saw back in From the Ruins of Alderaan. In the present, we finally see Leia outside at night in a graveyard going and meeting Prince Caspar and talking about what's coming on, uh, what's going on with this marriage, and basically it seems as though 
they really had had time to really get to know each other, and certainly there's no feelings between them, at least not in Leia's direction towards him, but he's starting to become fond of her, but it's sort of a duty first kind of thing. You know, they're not going to worry about falling in love at this point. This is literally a political marriage, a la what we saw on Earth. Um, and we still see it sometimes today, but especially back a few centuries ago going on backwards. Luke, turns out, though, is basically a stalker at this point. Uh, Luke, with his ever-changing hair and chin, has essentially been following them and keeping an eye on things and eventually gets called back to the base. But you get this sense that Luke is very upset by this and is, I don't know, you almost expect that you're going to hear like, Every breath you take, <laughs> every move you make, every prince you hook up with, I'll be watching you. Um, <laughs> it's, again, it's, it's an oddity, but it's going to fit the attitude there because it kicks off the first sequence in which people are like, the hell are you doing, Luke? Which is Rogue Squadron training. They're flying their X-Wings on maneuvers through different valleys and whatnot around these cliffs and mountains on Erichar, which is actually a pretty cool-looking landscape and whatnot, and basically Luke is just going to do whatever he wants to do. He's going to disobey orders, he's going to try to set a record by himself, he's going to put himself in danger, he's going to put the ranking of his wingman uh, within the squadron in jeopardy because he's going off and doing his own thing. He's basically being a petulant little a-hole. It, it's like, I'm so tired of this crap, I'm gone! And he hops in the car and floors it down the highway, not caring if he puts himself or others in danger because he's a pissed-off teenager. That's that's not the Luke that we know. And fortunately, Wedge doesn't put up with this. It's not, oh, well, he's Luke. He's the hero of Yavin. He gets to do what he wants to do and making all kinds of exceptions for him, as you would have expected back in some of the earlier Star Wars stories, say, in like the mid-80s. Instead, Wedge is angry as all hell, and Wedge grounds him again. This is now twice in this series that Luke has been told, you've done something petulant, you aren't going to get to fly with the squadron until you actually act your age, basically. Uh, and it's what's going to allow Luke to go up on a separate storyline to a degree as the rest of this story progresses. I like the fact that they have a reason for Luke to not be with the squadron where he's supposed to be to go off and do this other thing. But how they did it and making Luke into the emo teenager, again, that's not... Luke, I kept thinking that maybe there was something else to him. Maybe I was reading the, the inflection of what he was saying wrong or something, and this was going to turn out to be some kind of miscommunication in the end about Luke's intentions. But no! He's just being an emo kid! Yeah, two things about that. You know, one is kind of like the dialogue, as you mentioned, but the fact that it seems to be he cares more about what R2 says than anyone else. You know, when Wedge talks about strowing, uh, Luke being being strown across 10 kilometers of mountainside, Luke's like, like she'd care. And then R2's like, <laughs> and Luke's like, take it easy, R2. I'm fine. It's like, what did R2 say to you that you got all a little emotional there and got a little defensive? Because when everyone else is saying things, you're like, as ordered, Rogue Six. And it's smart Alec. And when he says that, I don't know who the hell that pilot is because that ain't Luke. That ain't Wedge. That that ain't Coran Horn. I, I don't know what they were drawing in that moment, but that sure is not Luke. Like, what the heck? But beyond that monstrosity of characterness, the X-Wing flights in this, and, and you mentioned that the, the, the planet scape of this planet is just glorious. And the way that they're flying through it, that's really cool. That's really drawn well. And I like the fact that, you know, Luke gets really close to the ground there and the way it's drawn there is glorious. But what they're doing with the character, the continuity of the character from page to page, like the only thing about this character going as ordered Rogue Six with the OK symbol is the helmet. The helmet is clearly Luke's. Beyond that, this face, I cannot place it. It doesn't look like Han Solo. Maybe General Maidine? I don't know who the hell they were drawing. Yeah, the, the the way you tell the characters apart in this story in general is the color of their hair and what they're wearing. So when they're all wearing X-Wing flight suits and helmets, it gets a little complex to try to figure out who the heck each one of them is. And you can't even go by call signs because right now, Luke's Rogue Five, but later, Rogue Six is Rogue Five. I'm like, mm -hmm. wait, what the hell? Well, you know, because Luke isn't there, so you gotta shift the numbers, I suppose. I um, guess. Now that brings us to looking at the rebel base under construction and finally meeting the antagonist of the piece. 
Prince Kaspar is going for basically a tour of the new rebel base and whatnot, and he has the general, again, Voldemort, the unnamed general, there with him. This guy has apparently been his mentor and advisor since he was young. Perhaps that's why he never calls him by his name. We just assume that he knows his name. He has a cybernetic eye in place of a regular eye on one side of his head, or, or maybe it's not a cybernetic eye. Maybe it's like a, yeah. a thing over his eye that lets him see things as if he's looking through like macro binoculars or something, because it's not actually in his head. It's like over the eye socket, basically. Um, he is the character that we should remember, apparently, because he's got the cybernetic guy, he's the black guy, and he's the bald guy. He's Nick Fury. Oh, this is... This, well, he's kind of Nick Fury. He's kind of like Nick Fury if you cross the bottom half of his face with a California raisin. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Old How did he know Fury. that the Empire had designs on Arachar just like the Rebels did? Well, he heard it through the grapevine, apparently. Um... And you get this sense, basically, that he doesn't agree with Caspar marrying Leia and this alliance coming up. But, you know, it's sort of one of those, you know, I respect your decision. You are going to wind up being a great leader someday, blah, blah, blah. But maybe you just don't know everything. You know, maybe you're not making a decision based on the right things. And I know better than you do. So it's sort of one of those. It's it's almost like a parental thing, right? You may not agree with the decision, but you want to support the decision. And in his case, maybe it's not because he wants to be supportive per se, but he wants to appear that way, given the fact that he's the antagonist of the piece who's going to be the betrayer from within. We see the Rebel fleet again very briefly, uh, taking note of the ship with Kaspar and it's flying by. We get a quick scene of Han being at least a little bit frustrated by the fact that Leia is going to be marrying Kaspar. They really don't harp on Han's feelings about it hardly at all in this story. You would think that they would, because usually he's the one we think of as being all bent out of shape over Leia and the one more free with his emotions. But no, it's Luke instead. Uh, we find that Perla is still there, the blue-haired lady who helped them find the stuff uh, back in the previous arc and whatnot. She is the one, uh, basically her only role in this is to show up there briefly to say, hey, remember, she still exists. And for a reason for why the Rebels have a certain technology already set up uh, by the end of the story. And we do get a nice callback to A New Hope. I'll give them that. Before they... Screw up again on the last page of the first issue. We do get a moment in which Luke goes to talk to Han and calls back to A New Hope, basically saying, you know, remember just before the battle at Yavin, you offered me a bunk on the Falcon? Is the offer still good? Of course, at this point, it turns out that at least according to this series, Han is already planning to stay with the Alliance. Mumop has offered him a rank, etc., etc. Continuity-wise in the Legends continuity, that shouldn't be happening yet. But, again, taken in kind of as an island here, it is a nice callback moment that I'm kind of surprised we don't see more often in some of the immediate post A New Hope stories in terms of any time that Luke isn't sure that he can cut it or isn't sure where he wants to be, that there's not more of a consideration of, hey, don't forget, Han was the one who says, you know, you're a good pilot, we could use you. You know, trying to suggest that he could go up on the Falcon as a member of the crew. Of course, then... Whenever he's told, no, you wouldn't understand. No one understands. Just drop it, Han. I'll see you around. And spends the last page doing the whole walking alone outside at night, turning on the lightsaber with a determined look on his face for no freaking reason. Oh, he was totally channeling Malfoy in there. Oh, come on, Potter. I don't want to talk about it, Harry. I'm like, whoa, what is going on? Uh, you know, I, I do want to say one thing, though, about the uh, Arachar's ships. They have a, a helicopter-like look to them. Uh, you know, earlier on we had the, the, the diplomatic shuttle and now we've got the all black one and stuff when it shows up. So I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know. I mean, there's so many different angles about this that just kind of slip right past me. I mean, when, when Luke did that whole aspect with Han, I thought that was really cool. And when Luke, and when Han says the fact that, you know, he's going to stay, that, that did strike me as odd. That, that, you know, as you pointed out, that little continuity rift there, I was like, oh, wait, he's already joining up with him? Because I was kind of almost looking forward to some adventures of Luke going off with Han. Like, I was like, hey, what if Luke took a break during all the rebellion and stuff? Maybe he got so, you know, teenage love hurt with Leia that he went off. You know, I mean, I, I think about the crazy crap I did when I was a teenager in love and had my heart broken. I mean, you know, I, it would not be unlike a guy to reinvent himself as a smuggler after reinventing himself as a rebel to then reinvent himself again as a rebel later. Uh, so I don't know when that, when that happened, I was kind of 
quickly got excited and quickly got bummed again. I was like, oh, man. It was cool to see Perla kind of get her little time off. Like, you know, it wasn't just she just disappeared between pages. They did a send off there. That was doing it right. Like, I, I enjoy when they do little things like that right. And and I don't, I'm not even saying they as in Brian Woods. I mean, just they as storytelling. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think Brian did that like and in, in, in plotted out like, well, we got to stick that scene in because he's missed the ball with a lot of other things. So I, I just think that they really got lucky with that and hit the strike. So we move into the second issue of this and we see a quick briefing by Wedge of the Arachar Militia, uh, better known as the Sideburn Brigade, I suppose, here, who are kind of annoyed that the Rebels aren't able to provide X-Wings at this point to Arachar. They're providing Z-95 headhunters, mainly because, you know, Incom Corporation has its own problems with the Empire right now. They don't have the X-Wings to spare, and the, the Arachar Militia is kind of grumbling about that at this point. Uh, we have Wedge have a quick conversation with Leia, where Leia is working on the X-Wings. This is going to be a point of contention later because Prince Caspar is going to be annoyed that she's not keeping up appearances as a princess. She's down in the trenches, you know, kind of as a grease monkey and whatnot. Again, this is another one of these things that Brian Wood is putting in here that it's cool to see Leia as an ace pilot and a mechanic because you would think that someone who's a rebel leader who's really going to see a lot of action in that sense needs to be very versatile in their skills in terms of combat and being able to fix things on the fly in case you get shot down and whatnot. But it's not a side of Leia we really ever saw in any great detail in other Star Wars stories in the Legends continuity. So it feels odd that all of a sudden, not only is Leia an ace pilot, Leia is also able to fix her own X-Wing. Now, like, why don't we ever see her helping fix the Millennium Falcon instead of sitting back and griping about how, you know, would it be better if I got out and pushed and but letting Han and Chewie do all the work on the ship. I like it, but it's not in keeping in a lot of ways with the Leia that we're used to. And this is, again, Brian Wood perpetuating this change that he introduced earlier in the series that he is then continuing throughout. Well, you mentioned helping with the Falcon and in Empire Strikes Back when they're in the space slug, she does kind of help Han. I mean, she's oh, in there true. doing her own thing. And then Han comes in and, you know, you're going to put a little more elbow grease into it. And she gets kind of ticked off because she was capable. But I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying because there is that angle that isn't played up that much. It is an angle I, I am enjoying seeing play out more. Uh, it, it was interesting, too, because Wedge said something that I, I had to agree with. You know, I mean, the whole conversation that he's having with these pilots makes sense. You know, they don't have the X-Wings. They only have the Headhunters. And then when he's talking to Leia, she's like, what's wrong? Oh, it's the Orochans again. The thing is, they're right. About the fighters, at least. We should be training them in combat-ready T-65s. Our headhunters are barely fit for the drills. It sends the wrong message. And then he, he talks also about, you know, they look at a battle like Yavin and think one brave pilot in an X-Wing is all it takes. Which, you know, I was talking about how there are aspects of the characters that I stop and I think about. You know, Leia being a leader as well as being a grunt in the field. And the fact that Luke gets all the reputation as being the one, like that's something Legends has always played with. And even the new canon is going that direction. And I, I often wonder, you know, wouldn't it be smarter from the Rebellion's standpoint to not be like, hey, it was just one guy, you know, to be like, we did this and not put it all on one individual who the Empire could then snipe out and assassinate. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of get the idea of, you know, you make Luke a person to rally around. But what we're getting in this story, Luke is not the kind of person you really want to be rallying around. And so, I mean, there, there's that angle of outside the story that I stop and I question, you know, who is Luke Skywalker? I mean, he's so many different things to so many different people that when we see him show up like this, it grossly almost offends me to the Luke Skywalker that I know. And then you hear them talking about him being a soldier savant. And it's like, but who is this? Who is showing up in this comic? This guy doesn't appear to be a soldier savant at all. He seems to be, like, like Nathan said, a perpetual little twerp who's gotten lucky so far. He got lucky that Ben showed up and decided to start training me because he was lucky enough to be born the child of Anakin Skywalker. I mean, there's very little about Luke that is redeeming the character at this point for me in the story. And I think that that's one of the things that really bothers me about the story in general. Whereas Leia is providing things that, while yeah, they may not be things we see that often. There are things that we've seen elements of and that it doesn't seem too far-fetched for her to be doing these things. But Luke, I'm just constantly scratching my head thinking, what in the hell kind of Luke Skywalker was Brian Wood watching in those films? 
It's funny you mentioned Luke being trained by Ben and all, because the very next scene that we get is him basically meditating, trying to get in touch with Ben. You know, ben, Ben, are you there? Come on, Ben, where are you? As he's meditating. Um, I'm thinking that Ben, oh, he hears him. But this is like, you know, again, if you're in high school or something, and you got a friend who's all hung up over a girl and is having problems and stuff, and is just doing nothing but bitching about it all the time, and you're so tired of hearing it, you're just like, you know what, when the phone rings, I'm sending that straight to voicemail. He's going to Ben's force mail, basically, at this point, because Ben's not answering him. He gets a call telling him to go back to the base. It's a general message on the Squadron channel. Is it looking to punish me a little bit more, Wedge? Yeah, whatever, you petulant little snot. We get a quick scene here in which Prince Caspar is talking to Leia about how, as I mentioned earlier, about that whole it's not becoming of a princess to be down there with the Grease Monkey. She talks about how basically, you know, the Alliance is trying to break away from elitism. That's not who I am. I'm not giving up my rebel duties for this, etc., etc. How it's all kind of him saying, you know, people will see it this way. I'm hearing this. Others are seeing this, but not necessarily what he thinks. And it's you get the sense there, especially because the general, Voldemort, is sitting around the corner uh, smiling about this conversation, that it's definitely things that are being put into his ear by that guy as opposed to what he actually thinks. Luke shows up, and apparently that return to base message was a Leia wants to see you message. Because Luke shows up, there's a couple of guards keeping him from getting to the hallway where Leia and Caspar are talking, and he's like, she wants to see me! You know, let me through, Leia! And he's calling from down the hallway, Leia, it's Luke! And Leia's finishing up her conversation with Caspar. You know, we'll talk tomorrow, Prince. I have duties. And she walks away. And we see Luke with this this grit on his face, look, again, looking like he's trying to pass... Okay, let me illustrate <laughs> the, the, the image on Luke's face here. And bear in mind that none of the characters in this this comic arc, when they talk... None of them actually open their mouths. They grit their teeth. Their teeth are still together. It's open lips, big old block of white teeth. So they're all kind of talking through grit teeth like this the entire time. In this case, Luke looks like something I experienced. I love sunflower seeds. The thing about it is that I'm not someone who takes a sunflower seed, bites off the shell, and throws it out because the shells are what's salted. So I have a tendency, if I'm eating sunflower seeds, to just eat the whole thing, even though I know you're really not supposed to. And there came a time when I was really hooked on the sunflower seeds and ate a ton of them in a very short period of time. The end result was that when it came time for me to take a dump to get rid of the what's left of this, parts of the shell were left, and I was literally being stabbed from the inside out and in intense pain because of pieces of sunflower shell ripping their way through my intestines as I tried to use the restroom. It was the most excruciating pain I have ever experienced while trying to defecate. And I can imagine that my face at the time looked like Luke's face right here. She she just walked away. Okay, well, you were down the hall. She may not have heard you. But there's also the, well, wait a second, how could she not have heard him when he's yelling down this cavernous, echoing hallway? Either way, just like, what? And this apparently is what causes Luke to decide that he needs some other kind of mission. He goes to the command room, talks to Mon Mothma, and apparently there's this this mission coming up where a bunch of uh, mountain rangers, Eritrea mountain rangers, are going up supposedly to change a power cell and like a little communications thing up on a mountain, and they're going to be doing it on foot because you know patrolling the mountains is just what they do, and it's part of their calling. They're not going to take a ship to do it. And Luke just volunteers to go along basically as like a PR thing to get to know the people of Erichar and whatnot and sow some goodwill because he wants to get away from Leia. Because Leia just walked away when she either didn't hear me or was busy with something else. <laughs> it's like, you know, I can't believe that you didn't call me back, honey. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know that you were in the hospital. I know that you wound up getting into a car accident. I know you were in a coma for three freaking days, but you know what? You could have picked up a phone while you were in that coma. My God, Luke, stop acting like I want to shoot you in the face with a shotgun. Well, what's so funny is that scene where Luke's down the hall and he's like, Leia, it's Luke. Like It makes you think of defecation. And for me, I'm thinking, this is like a total Ross and Rachel moment here. Like He just keeps missing her time after time. And then he finally gets to the end and he's like, she's your sister. Wait, what? <laughs> but the one thing that I, I thought was kind of interesting about that scene, though, is the general was there the whole time. Even when Luke is screaming down the hallway, you can see the general in silhouette. 
And then when you get to the next scene and Luke's saying, you know, hey, I, I want to do something. Mon Mothma's like, Commander, I like you don't even know if she's going to tell him, like, I have nothing for you. Go back to your room or not. But the general who is also in the room overhearing this, if I may, Mon Mothma, the young commander might be perfect for the assignment with the Acharian mountain rangers. And then he goes on about it being a mission. You know, it, it's like he recognizes that Luke has kind of become a thorn in, in his plans and it's time to do something about Luke. And it was very subtle. Like, I didn't really catch that, that he was probably the one manipulating everything at this point. And, and it, it's like he's there in each of these scenes and... Like, literally, in the one, there's no detail to him. It's just a silhouette. It's like, and if you're not paying attention, you'd miss it. It's so subtle. And yet, how is it messing with his plans unless it's just the whole, we got to keep Leia there as long as we can as bait for the Empire because he doesn't want the marriage to happen. So, wow, here's a guy who's so petulant. Maybe he's trying to break up the upcoming marriage. Boy, that would ruin my plans of them not getting married. Oh, wait. It's more just sort of a, he's a hero of the Rebel Alliance, it seems like. Let's put him in harm's way, because it turns out that this is a way to bump him off um, as we get to the, the later issues. So, in space, this basically gigantic, automated Imperial tug shows up out of hyperspace. They freak out about it, and Han and Chewie have to go up and check out and see what the heck is going on with it. Actually, it's not just Han and Chewie. Leia gets, this is that part where Leia gets sent up there too, and I'm like, really? You're going to send Leia up there? Like, I get Han and Chewie, but sending Leia, the leader of the rebellion, the one who, who the wedding, all this hinges on, you're going to put her up there to check this out. That struck me as odd. It is. It's just another, you know, instance to make sure that we have her in at every scene we possibly can. Uh, meanwhile, Luke is making a trek that apparently takes two days, but somehow he's able to make it back in five hours later, uh, which it's called out in the comic. He is walking with the rangers up the side of a mountain and talking about how, you know, he comes from a desert planet, so this is very different. And the leader, uh, another nameless character, the leader of this group of rangers is like, eh, 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 how's your breathing? You know, kind of mocking the fact that, you know, coming from a flat land, as he calls it, that Luke would be having trouble breathing at this point because of the elevation and whatnot. And they finally do make it up uh, close to where they need to go. They'll continue on the next day. They sit down at a campfire at night, and they're talking about how basically the regular people of Erichar aren't like the elite. They want their privacy. They don't want the Empire. They don't want the rebels. They want their privacy. They don't want the rebels there at all to draw attention to them. And yet Luke basically lays out the, you know, look, you know, the Empire grows larger every day. It's only a matter of time before it comes to Erichar, and you won't just lose your privacy. They'll make you all slaves. That uncle I mentioned, talking about Owen, he had no interest in the rebellion in the galaxy, or anything beyond his farm and family. But that didn't stop stormtroopers from coming and killing him and Aunt Beru. Yep. Truly, this happened? I am sorry. And we got this sense of how, you know, Luke is maybe starting to bond with these guys. They even finally call him Skywalker instead of Stranger as the others go to sleep for the night and Luke is sitting there still staring at the fire. Um, we don't really get a sense that these guys are buddies or anything, but I guess it's meant to make it so that it's a shock when they turn on him later on on the general's orders. This is like the only part where Luke's character feels right to me. I like the fact that as they're getting up and, and they talk about him being a, a flatlander and stuff, you know, Luke's vomiting. The, the change in elevation is having a physical effect for him. You know, this time Luke's dialed in. All it takes is some vomiting and Luke is back to his normal self. Maybe it's kind of like being drunk. So... We show back up in space. We see Leia in uh, one small vehicle with C-3PO1 uh, ship, actually kind of straight out of the Clone Wars at this point, and uh, the Millennium Falcon going to check it out while a quick conversation is held between Kaspar and the general back at the palace. Just a quick little one-page bit. Uh, Luke walks around to the snow, still trying to contact Ben, but the thrust of the last few pages is what's happening up in space with this drone ship that showed up. And C-3PO lays out it is basically a drone ship, uh, they're sending a navigation link to it so it can jump to hyperspace and get the heck out of there so there's no chance of the Imperials finding them and all. And it's really kind of a non-event, or so it seems, until we realize that it dumped off an Imperial probe droid that is now beeping as the issue ends. I thought the ending was kind of cool. I like the fact that they, they take some moments and kind of give you some supposition there with uh, 3PO and Leia talking about what the freighter is. Because you kind of like... Wait, is there somebody on it or not? And, and the way it got there, you know, it seems 
to be a legitimate reason. And even Leia's like, you know, is this a coincidence? <laughs> I mean, I, I like the fact that at this point, everything's kind of seeming natural. You have a feeling that, that someone's about to be betrayed, which kind of feels classic Star Wars in the aspect of what I've come to see with legends and stuff like that. Luke, Leia, Han, it never seemed like wherever they went, things were never as they seemed. And you were just always waiting for that other shoe to drop. So, you know, we kind of get back to that place of like, well, we got that feel. So you, you kind of get the feeling like Brian Woods is trying really hard. But there are times where you're scratching your head going, why did you choose to do that when you could have done this? And there was a lot of that going through this. See, you are much nicer than I am. You call it classic Star Wars. I call it been there, done that, didn't need to see it again. So that about wraps up this episode. We're going to split this one in two. I'm sorry, folks. I really am. <laughs> Had to be done. Uh, so that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zune, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a positive review while we're at it. If you don't like us, we don't care. You can always find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWords.com. And speaking of past episodes, you can find them all at www.StarWarsReport.com slash BeyondTheFilms. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to our sponsors at www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or that canon one or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And the hosts who shall not be named. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that in the back half of this story, Luke might start acting like Luke. Or that we start getting villains that actually are named more than the general. Call the general and save some time. General One-Eye. Maybe his name actually is supposed to be General Fury. Mm, that could be. He did seem kind of furious. put out the first six issues of Star Wars Volume 2 as one trade paperback, the next sick. <clears throat> take a drink, son, my fucking throat. It's a prog. <clears throat> the two-issue full of, full of Sith? No, it's a podcast. So instead, they rearranged it. And paper... And... Come on, cat, you've got to fucking get out of the way. This is a... a, a an arc. Say it again. And wasn't this done in the slightly uh, earlier, well, mm, I'm just fucking up like mad because it's a fucking headache. And an antagonist, <coughs> <coughs> damn it, I'm making this hell on editing is what I'm doing for you here. It's, it's, it's <laughs> my gift to you. Uh. <clears throat> I would say Ledge, I would say Wedge, Han, and Chewie. 
trying to fucking remember what was what it was that you said. Fuck. Completely left my head. Character drawings. Luke as a savant. And it was right before you started talking about the Luke as a savant thing. Alright, let me just change the... Now, you know, I just cut the whole above Arachar and are welcomed... Welcomed? And are welcomed there. Arachar will be a feather in the Alliance's cap. A world incredibly rich in we... We... Fuck! This migraine is kicking my ass. Pizza and soda doesn't go good with end credits. Now that, that about wraps up the show. We're done. Fuck it, we're out. This sucks. We're done. Who needs to the story? Yeah. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.